This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk, and today I'm talking to Jeff Rodkey. He's the author of a novel called Lights Out in Lincolnwood. Hilarious piece of work. I hope you're well, Jeff. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. So this is your first um, adult novel. You, you've generally been writing kids' books, it seems, for quite some time. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you decided to write this book. Well, it's interesting. Just in the in the larger sense of writing a novel for adults, it was kind of 35 years in the making. You know, I decided I wanted to be a writer from about the age of about 15 or 16. But my value added was always comedy. You know, when I first started writing, I would I would write like articles for my high school newspaper, you know, that were meant to be funny. And and sometimes they actually they actually were. And when they'd come out in the paper, kids would come up to me in the hallway at school and be like, hey, I, I really like that thing you wrote. It was really funny. And that kind of that kind of positive feedback was something I was not getting in a lot of other avenues of my life at age 15 or 16. And so that was the thing that really set me on the course. And I think when I, when I originally had that dream, I, I thought I would write up, I would write novels for adults because that's what I thought of as being a writer. But I kind of wound up because, you know, once you actually try to do something professionally, other things come into the mix. Like, will someone actually pay money for the thing I'm writing? So I wound up taking a detour into different kinds of writing for a long time. I was a screenwriter for about 10 or 15 years. Uh, I wrote a couple of, uh, a lot of, basically I wrote a lot of screenplays, but the only ones that got made were, were family films. Uh, there was a movie called Daddy Daycare with Eddie Murphy, a movie called RV with Robin Williams, and a few others. And that took me until about 10 or 15 years ago when I transitioned into writing books for kids. And again, the sort of the, the reason I initially, there were two reasons I initially started writing for kids. One of them was when I wanted to write a book, I, I was like, well, what, what kind of, because again, my value added is, is comedy. I was like, what kind of comic, you know, humorous books actually, you know, do people read in any kind of quantity? And I went into the bookstore and the only, the only funny books I could find were like in the middle grade kids section. So I started doing that. And I also had, you know, the second reason was I, I had three kids who were, who were that age, who were all, you know, when I started doing that, it was, they were about between eight and 12. And um, so I'd done that for about 10 years. I've written, I think I've had 10 uh, kids books come out. Um, the most recent one of which was a collaboration with Kevin Hart, the comedian and the actor. Uh, it was called Marcus Makes a Movie about somewhat unsurprisingly a kid who makes a movie with his friends. <laughs> but I'd always wanted to write a novel for adults. And finally, I kind of, my kids got older to the point where I no longer had a built-in focus group in the house. And I also was kind of running out of things to say to that age group. Because if you don't, if you don't live with an eight to 12 year old and you don't, you're not interacting yes. with a regular yes. basis, yeah. you know, it kind of, it gets a little, it gets stale. And so that was kind of where I was at. And I was like, well, I've never, I've never done the thing I wanted to do 35 years ago. So maybe, maybe it's time to, it's time to actually do that. And that was kind of where lights out in Lincolnwood came from. Um, although then there's the whole other answer of where did that specific idea come from? But maybe I should let you talk a little bit. Cause I feel like I've just rambled on. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm glad you're talking. That's what the purpose of this, but, um, I guess to set the stage for folks who might be listening and wondering what is this book Lights Out in Lincolnwood about? I mean, it is a, um, you might call it a romp, you know, in some ways it has that feeling of just on, ongoing energy. Um, but the setting is in suburban New Jersey where you have your family 
uh, that that's the core of the story. And all of a sudden, everything stops. No, nothing electric works. And this is kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a thing that we sometimes think about in our daily lives as what would I do if I couldn't have my phone? What would I do if, you know, if I didn't have water? Uh, but to have it all stop at once, you know, you, you create a scene which could go in a good or bad, mostly bad direction. We think, anyway. I think you know, you you've it's a great it's a great setup. And yeah, I well, think, I I think about it as it, I think of it as sort of the apocalypse in the suburbs, right? You know, and and, it's of, a, and of course we think of it, you know, because of the pandemic, for a lot of people that the notion of apocalypse has grown a little closer to home. And um, suburbia is probably where most of most of us live. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I've been living for the last. I grew up in a uh, a relatively small town in Illinois, but I've I've been in New York City for the last twenty five years, and um, I didn't want to set this in New York because I kind of there were there were things. Well, first of all, it, you know, it's really it's about the apocalypse or 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 a form of a very strange you know, nonviolent form of apocalypse in which nobody's actually sure if it's the apocalypse or it's just a really annoying, you know, sort of disruption in the technological infrastructure. Uh, in the context of the story at about, you know, 9 a.m. on a random Tuesday morning when the, the various members of the, the Altman family, who were the four people that are kind of whose perspectives are form the, uh, the core of the book, you know, the father's on his way to work. The mother is at home dealing with her own personal demons. The the teenage kids are, they're both on their way to school or have just gotten into school. And then suddenly just everything stops working. Anything with the circuit board just breaks down inexplicably uh, and without warning. So that, you know, the, the power grid goes down into everybody's phones, the laptops, any car manufactured after about 1975 because they all have electric starters. And, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of a dark comedy and the, and what I really wanted to explore was that sort of, as you know, as the book starts, everybody is is facing what they think are relatively serious issues in their in their personal lives. These four family members, and and I was I was looking to explore that kind of that that liminal space between, you know, do what, how seriously do I need to take this, and you know, is you know are 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 my bosses extraordinary you know annoying work demands uh, should those take precedence or should I start worrying about finding clean drinking water for my family, and and everybody in the everybody in the book comes to the decision about what's important at varying speeds and you know uh, with with varying levels of urgency and one of the reasons I wanted to despite the fact that I lived in New York I wanted to set it in the suburbs was I feel like if 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 there was a sort of quasi apocalyptic event like this. Um, New York would go to hell so much faster than everywhere else, just based on population density alone. And so there were, you know, and there's a lot of very specific weird things about living in New York that I didn't want to get distracted by. I wanted to tell a story that, you know, that anybody could relate to, uh, which is why it wound up uh, being set in the New Jersey suburbs. Well, and it also kind of broadens your audience in a way because so many so many people do live in suburbs and can relate. And it, and I thought you captured that kind of uh, deer in headlights confusion, you know, where you think that you like like the daughter who's working really hard to get into college and is thinking about her tennis match the next day after the power goes out and everything stops. She's still thinking, well, I'm going to go play tennis tomorrow. And you just sort of have this that kind of um, weird feeling of 
you don't really know what to do, you know, when your daily life is interrupted in this, you know, extreme way. But I thought, you know, kind of metaphorically, it's, it's passage to imagine going through. Like, what would you do if? It is, it's like a thought experiment that we all have. But this, you know, in, in a novel, you get to play with the characters and examine each of, how each of them will behave. And the behavior uh, uh, differentials among the different people is pretty extreme. Trying to make that personal decision of like, you know, at what point do I actually really need to worry about food and water as opposed to tomorrow's <laughs> tennis match is um, that, that was kind of the fun and the terror of it, really. And it, and it was actually based, you know, the original idea for this uh, came out of my experience with mm -hmm. Hurricane Sandy which, you know, that was back in, in 2012. And at that point, uh, we had, you know, I have three sons and they were, the oldest one was 12. They were, you know, they were 12 and 12, 10, and I think maybe seven. And, um, and we lost power. We were in lower Manhattan and we lost power and water for five days and we're just immediately reduced to like practically like a foraging lifestyle. Like we would, you know, every morning we, we would have to, the, the superintendent in the, in the apartment building had broken open uh, a street level hydrant and filled a trash barrel with water for everybody in the building. And so every morning I would go down with a bucket or two buckets actually, and I would fill them up with water and, and, and carry them up the 10 flights of stairs so we could flush the toilets. And then once we'd done that, we would get the kids together and then we would, we would, we would go out, you know, down the 10 flights of stairs and, and march them about 30 blocks north to where the power was back on in Midtown. And we would like get them food at a deli and then we would, we would go to a friend's house who actually ha still had power and water. We would shower, we'd charge our phones, and then we'd have to like run back downtown before the <laughs> sunset. Because it, like after sunset in lower Manhattan, it was like Omega Man. You just, you didn't want to be out because there was no light of, at, at all. And it was just, you know, it was just kind of eerie. So, and I, you know, and, and we never had that sort of existential terror that, you know, that eventually kind of some of the, some of the characters in the book wind up in because I always knew it was temporary. You know, the water was going to come back. I knew, I knew why it had happened and, and I knew the water was going to come back on and the power was going to come back on eventually. And we just had to wait it out. Um, but I always did wonder, like, you know, what would happen if if that that breakdown of, of our infrastructure was was more widespread if we couldn't just walk 30 blocks and get a sandwich or if it you know if it went on indefinitely and i didn't really have a good answer for that so i it, it, there was and it sort of created this kind of background hum of anxiety uh you know psychologically and eventually the only solution to that was to either you know, get a piece of property in upstate New York and build a survivalist cabin for my family or just write a book and transfer all that anxiety <laughs> into fictional characters. <laughs> so, and that's, and I wound up doing the latter, which may be sort of maladaptive over time. I don't know. Well, it yet, might be, but no, right. It's, it was more, more it's definitely more fun. And plus you don't have the overhead of taking care of another house. So, and maybe you can make enough money from selling the exactly. book. So then you can buy a, a house in the country. Someone else can take care of for you. Well, believe me, we've, I, the, the proceeds from the book to date have not been enough to purchase a survivalist <laughs> cabin in the upstate. I know, <laughs> I, I, I know better. You know, I, I've been around books my whole life. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, my father was a, originally a television writer and then wrote novels. Oh, no kidding. So we went from, you know, not making any money to not making any money. Um, but. Yeah, so 
And he was a comedy writer too. In a way, I thought about, you know, I thought about no his first novel takes place. We lived in, in suburban Connecticut and he wrote a novel about suburban Connecticut, of course. And his, this, that I've thought a lot about the suburban humor writers of the fifties and sixties, because they really did kind of die out and disappear as a genre. So when you were talking about not finding comedy um, among adult writers, I mean, it is it is actually true that there aren't that many um, kind of models to follow. Yeah, they are. They're challenging to find. There was something, I think once, you know, once film, television, and radio, you know, appeared, just the, you know, the, the, the market for humor in written form, you know, really dried up because it's, it's, it's harder. It's harder to be funny on paper than it is because humor is, it's such a, you know, and laughter is such a visceral thing that it's just, it's, it's a much harder medium to put it across. And, you know, when you think about it, like, you know, the, I think the last really great and, and popular, you know, uh, comic novelist was probably PG Woodhouse. And mm -hmm. he's been gone for a long well, you time. Know, but I, I, <laughs> you know, right. those books are fantastic, but they're the most of them. Right. I think a World lot of uh, one of the problems with humor in that respect is that it requires a kind of shared uh, experience in order because humor uses that shared experience to make you're making fun of yourself or you're making fun of each other, but you have to have a common understanding in order for it to be funny. And, you know, and as I mean, it's today, we have such a fragmented cultural landscape. We don't share enough of the, uh, of the kind of stuff of daily life to be sure that the humor that you use will actually apply or re resonate to the people that you're either writing or talking to. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think also the, 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 the kinds of humor that are universal are, um, are not well expressed through, you know, through, through writing. Like for example, um, this has always been sort of, this is a signal moment in my, in, in my experience as a comedy writer, which was, you know, I wrote, I wrote the screenplay for this movie, Daddy Daycare. And at one point we were doing rewrites in the pre-production and the, um, and the, and the director was like, well, we, it, I want to put in this scene where one of the characters gets, gets kicked in the nuts. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's the, that is the lame, like really, like really. And he's like, yes. He's like, you you know, when you're, by the way, when you're the screenwriter in a, in a, in a, in a studio production or really any kind of film production, your voice is not important. <laughs> like you just, you're, you're not the person driving the bus. And so, so that winds up in the, in the, in the movie. And I was like, you know, I just had this like, oh my gosh, there's a, there's actually a crotch kicking joke in the movie. And, and my sort of disdain for that lasted until the premiere of the movie when I was sitting next to my, my mother, who was an English teacher and a Shakespeare scholar. The, the moment where the guy gets kicked in the nuts, she laughed harder and longer than it, anything else in the entire movie. <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 and I couldn't, and, and, and by the way, so, so did the rest of the audience. It was, you know, it was a huge laugh and, and she couldn't even explain. I was like, why did you like, why was that so funny and she couldn't explain she tried to explain
it. She tried to justify it. She's like, no, well, it was the context and it was this cute little girl and it was unexpected. You know, it was just, but the, the bottom line is like, that's just viscerally hilarious to most people. And, and for reasons that are like, if you write it into a script and you read the script, it's not funny at all. But if you see it acted out visually, there's something about it. It triggers the involuntary laughter kind of reflex. Do you think it has to do with physical humor? You know, the, the power of physical humor, this sort of, um, you know, old fashioned, um, Laurel and Hardy kind of physical humor where you see it and it, you can't help yourself. It's so basic that it makes you laugh. I don't know. Maybe that's what it yeah, is. Yeah, no, that's a big, that's a big part of it. That is, a, it's a, it's a big part of it. And it's because it's visual, it's like you're, you're processing it and you're, again, it's, it's almost involuntary. Like some, like the, the really huge laughs right. are involuntary and it is next to impossible to, to get that kind of laughter in print, which doesn't mean everybody listening should not read lights out in Lincolnwood <laughs> because it's hilarious. Well, there, I, I do want to say there are, there are, there are scenes in, in this, there are at least two or three scenes that I can remember that I did make me laugh out loud and that that's hard to do. Well, and I was, I was really gratified since it's come out, I've gotten, I've gotten two different emails from perfect strangers, um, both of whom saying they had, they had laughed out loud for a really long time at, at, at there's one chapter in which the, you know, the younger, the younger, of the two kids, who's a, a 14 year old boy has a, um, he has a vape addiction. He's addicted to, you know, to vaping nicotine. And when the, when, the, when the, you know, when this, this apocalyptic event happens, it destroys all the vape devices too, because they're, you know, they're electronic and he's, and he's reduced to like trying to figure out how he's going to source his nicotine because he's still addicted. And he winds up acquiring some chewing tobacco and trying it for the first time without ever having done it before and having no idea how you're supposed to use chewing tobacco. Mm -hmm. And, and that particular chapter, like I said, like two perfect strangers have emailed me and told me how much they had laughed out loud at that, which was, which really, really gratifying. Well, that was in fact a hilarious scene. And I think it's partially because we can project ourselves into that position and imagine the, uh, being in that, in that position as a kid, um, and being, I mean, it, that was, it, that definitely was a great scene. Well, it was also, it was also the product of, uh, of primary research in that, um, the, when I just, I actually went out to, um, I, I did a lot of research in the New Jersey suburbs and basically the Lincolnwood, the fictional suburb is really, it's basically Glen Ridge with, you know, with some of the more upscale parts of Montclair attached to it. And, and that one Saturday morning, um, I was doing other research there. Like I wanted to, you know, there's a point where the whole foods gets looted. And I, I, so I went to check out the whole foods on Bloomfield Avenue in, uh, in Montclair to see like, if this, if this was going to get looted, what are the specifics of how to get looted? Um, and by the way, the thing I discovered with that was, well, the first thing would happen is like that giant pyramid of avocados. When you first walk into the store, that would be knocked down and all over the floor and just be making. Right. Everybody so, be stepping on the avocados and falling down. Yeah. And so things like that came, came from direct research. But while I was out there, I went out and I bought a tin of skull and I sat down on a, on the, on a bench in I think it's called Memorial park in Montclair. And I, I did exactly what, Max, the kid in the book, would have done. You know, I, I I tried to figure out how to open it, and I hadn't, and I'd chewed tobacco, but it was like twenty or thirty years ago, um, and so I tried it for the first time in like several decades. And it, it, first of all, it was 
it was really hard to figure out how to open the can. <laughs> and then the second thing was like, you put that stuff in your mouth and it triggers your saliva glands in a, in a crazy kind of way. So that like, literally like, you know, it was a five minute experience, but 45 minutes later, my, my mouth was still generating <laughs> spit. <laughs> so all of the stuff that appears in that particular chapter, I don't think I'm spoiling anything uh, by talking about it. I'm, I might be grossing people out and actually persuading them that they shouldn't be reading this book. Um, but all of that was, you know, that was sort of as, as I lived it. Well, that might be a good scene for you know anybody who wants to discourage their child from trying chewing tobacco. Just read that, read that chapter. You'll be fine. It's gross. <laughs> it really is. Well, I you know one of the things I thought was really interesting, just to go back to the sort of dystopian um, idea of the story, and that is you know because there have been so many kind of either whether it's science fiction or fantasy or. Um, even politically oriented uh, dystopian novels, very few of them actually talk about or focus on the human beings who are in the middle of it. It's more, you know, people are more interested in the arc of history or the arc of the future. And what you've done is forced us to imagine the um, oneself in that position because so many of us, I mean, just as you were talking about New York city and, you know, I've been, so many people have been through so many storms and disasters. We're, we're kind of used to the temporary collapse so we can reach our, we can push our minds ahead to a bigger and more open-ended collapse. Um, and it, it's often hard to imagine what it would be like on a daily basis and it's rarely funny <laughs> so i i appreciate the humor but it's also the fact that you've made it human scale that we we know who these people are they look like us they're you know they're people that we can relate to yeah and the one of the things i really you know that i wanted to do from the outset was to to kind of tell a story like that from from the limited perspective of somebody who's actually living through it, it you know and in a situation where because all of everyone's electronics have gone down, the only source of information you're going to have is, you know, your eyes, your eyes and ears, what, whatever you can see and, and what your neighbors are telling you, you know, you, word of mouth becomes the only way of, of learning anything. And word of mouth is, you know, very, very unreliable. So, you know, so the, 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 the main, the characters in the middle of this really don't, they, they never really get a grasp on what's happening. And they're just sort of trying to make their way through it without seeing the whole of it. And that was something that limiting that perspective was also allowed me to keep it a comedy because, you know, if we'd zoomed out to an omniscient narrator who could explain exactly what was happening and, and how dire it was, or if, and also because it, it takes place on, on, over only about three days, or, it, or if I, if I'd expanded the, the, the time frame. It, it would have turned into a horror story and you know, the, the, the humor would have curdled. And so the, the, the humor to me was in, you know, a lot of, a lot of humor is in the kind of the disconnect between, you know, it, like expectations and, and, and reality and the, and this, and it's, it's kind of the way that like, you know, if you're watching Wiley e. Coyote chase the road runner and he chases him off a cliff 
and and has a moment where it's like everything's fine because he doesn't realize he's fallen off a cliff. It's like that moment of gradually realizing, oh my God, there's actually nothing underneath my feet. That's kind of where the comedy is. It's not it's not when he hits. I mean, to some extent, it's when he hits the canyon floor. But but that's also a cartoon, and you can't if you you know I wanted to write a realistic story, so you can't have them hit the canyon floor because it, then the humor just disappears. But but in a, in a situation like this, which is really a nonviolent apocalypse the horror is down the road. And if somehow, if, you know, if, if it's not as widespread as they thought, the, the horror may never arrive. But, and, it, and the, the comedy to me is in that moment of not being sure whether this was the end of the world or just, you know, just a pain in the neck that you, that you should probably ignore and go back to answering, you know, like your, your boss's demands. Well, and we still, we don't know. In fact, and, and it's good you you leave it open ended that way. But what they've done, and and of course I hadn't really thought about this, but if the um, if, if the apocalypse is not over, they've all made decisions that have changed their lives. And so, regardless of what the outcome is, your characters have in fact been transformed by the experience, which is really, I think, important. Well, they they definitely change as the story goes on. What what would kind of be interesting, and I've never really thought about this, is if everything went back to normal in a few days, to what extent would any character epiphanies they've had actually stick? Right. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, um, there was an onion. I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle this because I can't remember the exact wording, and the wording was so important. But there was an onion article once that was that was like, um, you know, roommate. Roommate wakes up, comma, decides life-changing epiphany wasn't a big deal after all. <laughs> and it was this story about like this, you know, it was these young, like 20-somethings, and, and one of them was, was just a drunk and had this kind of moment of like, oh my God, I'm an alcoholic, I need to change my life, everything's a disaster. And then he fell asleep and then he woke up again and he's like, no, everything's fine. I don't, I don't need, it's, it's not a problem, I don't actually have a problem. So, uh, yeah, so they, they have, by the end of the story, they've kind of, you know, the, the, all four family members have, have definitely changed. Uh, they, they've all had various, you know, these character arcs, but I don't, yeah, it, it would be an interesting, it's an interesting thought exercise as to whether or not they would, they would endure beyond the, the immediate crisis. Right. And you sort of think, okay, what happens if tomorrow all the power comes back on and all of this, you know, everything that they did, all the craziness is it can't, you can't erase it. Um, so you don't really know. I think that's really, it's good. It's sort of like the end of, I was thinking of the end of Thelma and Louise, like you don't really know what happens or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. You can, you think you know what happened, but you don't really know. And I like the, um, the idea of not, fully knowing where you're going next. Uh, of course, it gives you the opportunity. You could always write a sequel or you could say, ah, I've done with this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but it won't be these guys again. But yeah, it's funny because a number of people who've read it have, have been like, well, when's the sequel coming? And I'm like, there might not be a sequel. <laughs> like I thought it was, I, you know, I thought it was kind of, I felt like I had left them at a moment where, you know, they had, they, they had, they, I felt like there was enough closure that there didn't need to be another, another installment of the story. And, um, and I may have misjudged that based on the number of people who've asked me about a second book. <laughs> well, but of course it depends on you, whether those characters are still alive for you and whether you want to, 
keep telling their stories or do something different. Well, and they are, they're, they're very much still alive for me. Um, but it, it is less about me at this point and it's more about whether the publisher wants another book. <laughs> so, you know, if, if, if the, you know, if my editor came back and said, we want to, you know, we want to sign you up for a sequel, uh, I would probably say yes without too much hesitation because I have actually, I've thought about it. There are, there are definitely, um, there are places I can go with those characters that I, that are really interesting to me, both in the short and the medium term, uh, on a time horizon within the, you know, within the universe of the story. But, um, you know, it's a writing a novel is a, it's a big undertaking. And unless, 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 a, unless my publisher is like, yes, we really want this. It's probably not uh, a wise use of the next year of my life. <laughs> so I guess that leads me to ask this question. I think, now that you've written the novel, you know, you're the, uh, the adult novel, the adult story, how do you feel about, uh, fiction for adults versus story fiction for kids? Would, would you have a preference? Is there something about one or the other that you feel more strongly about? I really want to write more, more books for adults. Um, because it's, it's just much more, it's much more viscerally satisfying to get feedback from, from my peers than it is to get feedback from 10 year olds. As much as I love the 10 year olds, um, it's, um, yeah. And it, and it's also, you can just, there's a, there's a much, you know, my preoccupations again is a, I'm, a, I'm 50 years old and my youngest child is 16. So we're going to be empty nesters in a couple of years. I, I don't, I don't have access to that kind of, you know, middle grade kid, universe anymore. So I, you know, my, my appetite for telling those stories has kind of dimmed. Uh, that said, there's one, I'm actually in the middle of writing another middle grade book, uh, which has, is one of these, it's one of these ideas that I've kind of, I, it's kicked around in my head in, in various versions for almost a decade. And I've, uh, I, I, I tried writing a version of it a few years ago that didn't quite work. And now I think I've finally gotten the right, you know, I have the right take on it to write, to write a book that at least that I think is awesome. Um, I'm slightly less certain as to whether, uh, publishers are going to think it's awesome because it's a little bit, uh, out of step with kind of the tenor of things that are, that are getting published in, in the middle grade space these mm -hmm. days. Yeah. And they do, th but, uh, you know, actually you sort of alluded to that indirectly that, you know, not having kids in the house of that age, um, kind of disconnects you from their, cultural reality. And it does seem that, um, culture changes more quickly now so that the stories that, um, today's middle graders like might be different from the stories that 10 years ago, middle graders would like. And that's, a, that's, I think a fairly new development too. this sort of rapid pace of cultural change and their, the language of their daily lives is so different from what my, my kids are in their twenties. And they, I don't think they would recognize uh, 10 year old culture today. No, it's it, it, the metabolism of the culture and the and the pace of sort of technological change, which is coming hand you know hand in hand with the cultural changes. It's it's really bewildering. I mean, I remember I was um, I picked up my my twenty year old from his junior year of college, and uh, and he had spent the he'd spent the prior summer. This is sort of the COVID summer twenty twenty of uh, working at a at his former summer camp up in Maine, and we got to talking about that experience, and he said, "I got to tell you." I'm, I'm terrified of junior high school kids mm. because they're so, they're so different and there's, and they're so like, you know, 
they're they're all on TikTok and they're very politically radical and I don't understand any of them. <laughs> and, and this is a kid, this is a kid, he's, you know, he was he was not even 21 yet when he told me this. So it's like if the if the 20 year old is like, you know, scratching his head over these these crazy 13 year olds these days, you know, I don't know how much hope there is for a 50 year old who who isn't even hanging out with them uh, on a regular basis. No, fair, so um, fair. although there are, I will say there are there are things that are universal. Right. In, you know, in the in the in the childhood experience. And also the, the book that I'm the middle grade book I'm currently writing is set in uh, the Middle Ages. It's a it's a fictional uh, medieval universe. So so that's you know, that allows me to to not have to worry about, you know, is the is the social media platform I'm describing the right <laughs> social media platform. Right. Right. And book, there is yeah, no, right. And the book might have a longer life than a book that, you know, that's limited by the technology that it's about. Yeah. Well, hopefully fingers crossed. Although I don't know, books are, um, you know, there's a lot of books published every year and most of them are, are forgotten very quickly. So this is true. More books yeah. than ever before, but you know, we're leaving behind something for future, um, uh, researchers to try to understand. Well, I, I, I could only, I could only be so lucky as to have a future researcher <laughs> read one of my books. <laughs> that, that would be a huge accomplishment. Well, I'm, I bet it will happen. Um, in any case, I really appreciate your taking some time to talk. This was really fun. And it is a book that I think a lot of people are going to like. I hope you will. It will find an audience. The book's called Lights Out in Lincolnwood by Jeff Rodkey. The reading line, I think, is one that you should hear. Is it the end of the world or just a really bad day? I think that's a question a lot of us have asked. <laughs> yeah, that kind, of, that kind of sums it up. And I will say it was written pre-COVID, but it has some unsettling parallels with what we've all gone through in the last 18 months. Yeah, but I think it shows maybe the uh, universality of the feelings that you're engaging with with these people. So we're all there somehow or another. Anyway, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.